This is episode 79 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to episode 79 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, I have Elizabeth Kelly on the podcast, and what a great guest she was. She's just absolutely filled with knowledge, and she's currently investing in Northern Ontario, although she has roots in the greater Toronto area. Uh, very, very savvy investor when it comes to multifamily. She's doing multifamily burrs, and she's getting herself some very nice cash flow. And we're talking about perfect burrs where she's going in, buying a fiveplex, and managing to refinance all of her money back out, plus another thirty or forty thousand dollars in her pocket. Uh, really, an excellent strategy and an excellent uh, approach if you want to grow and grow really fast. And uh, this is something I've advocated a lot on this podcast. It's all about being able to recycle that money if you want to keep growing and growing quickly, uh, which ultimately has that wealth multiplying effect. If you think about it, one property is worth one million dollars in thirty years' time. Say you buy it for five hundred thousand today. Say conservative that's worth a million in 30 years well if your mortgage pays off in 30 years you now just added a million dollars to your net worth in 30 years so um, if we could do that with 10 20 30 40 50 properties then we just increase that by a number of orders of magnitude. And uh, obviously, that's something that many of us real estate investors are striving for. Uh, it was a really cool chat with Elizabeth, and uh, we even got into some political ideology. Uh, this is very much a nonpartisan uh, show. Of course, you know I, I do express my feelings on things, and I don't tend to hold back. With that being said, I just want to thank those that have taken the time to leave me a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. It's really helping this podcast to grow. Of course, you YouTube subscribers and the people commenting and liking, that's helping so much as well. Thank you very much for being a part of this with me. Once again, if you're new to the podcast, please make sure you head back to those earlier episodes because we really dig into the numbers and I show the spreadsheets right on the videos. So it's easiest if you're actually watching the YouTube versions for those episodes and uh, follow it right through. We've had so many great guests and they've added so much value on this show. It's just, it's absolutely unfathomable. I know that people are paying $30,000, $40,000 to buy into courses that don't teach as much as the guests on this show have taught. So uh, please don't uh, take that for granted. Please make sure that you are digging in because uh, the value is there and it's certainly applicable to the market today. So thank you so much. Without further ado, here is episode 79 with Elizabeth Kelly. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Elizabeth Kelly on the podcast today. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's great to be able to connect with you and uh, get to know a little bit more about you. And as always, chat about all things real estate. Yeah, yeah, ditto. Well, we, we tried to plan this before the whole lockdown and, and then yeah. had to cancel. So now we're doing it Zoom style. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Because I know you're deep into real estate, you're coaching, um, but it didn't start that way. So can you just give us a little bit of backstory? And of course, tell us what you're doing now. For sure. Absolutely. So my husband and I started investing in real estate about 15 years ago now. Um, and we were doing sort of the right thing, but we were doing it the wrong way. So we, uh, we were buying single family homes and renting them out. We were buying condos and, and thinking that we were going to do really well. And, uh, then we, we actually bought six condos in one building. We got hit with a special assessment and all of a sudden we went from, you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars a month in positive cash flow to like negative $300 per year. Per unit? Oh, that's not fun. That hit us pretty hard and we went, okay, we know we're doing the right thing. We just, obviously we're not doing it the right way. 
So we, um, we decided to educate ourselves and uh, we invested in a, a full service education with, um, it at the time was called Rich Dad, but now it's called Legacy. So we spent uh, a year educating ourselves, learning how to invest, and um, we restructured our portfolio based on everything we learned. It was great because, you know, not only did we learn and acquire skills to um, buy new properties, but it also gave us the opportunity to figure out what we were going to do with our our stuff that we already had. I, I think we sort of, you know, we sort of approached it like a chicken approaches an egg, where if I just sit on it and keep it warm long enough, eventually it'll hatch. And that wasn't happening with our properties. So it, um, we actually ended up, our very first rent-to-owns that we did were actually with properties that we already owned, and we approached the tenants who were in the units, and they rented to own them. So um, we educated ourselves. And then from there, we started acquiring more and more properties. Uh, We started coming back to Rich Dad to uh, be guest speakers. And then from there, I I actually was a trainer for Rich Dad for about eight years. So I taught a couple of three different courses, actually, um, basically for uh, new investors to learn the fundamentals. The last one I taught was called Momentum. And it was all the fundamentals that investors need to have, not for, you know, when you want to buy a property or when you want to dabble in real estate, but when this is something that you are passionate about, when this is something that you want to use to prepare for your retirement, to fund your kids' education, to uh, leave wealth for for future generations. So that uh, probably was the... I guess one of the most rewarding parts of real estate. I think there's a lot of people out there who love real estate. And then there's another segment of people who like real estate, appreciate all the benefits. And what it actually is, is a bit of a stepping stone to do the stuff that really, you know, lights your, lights your candle and, and gets you out of bed in the morning. So that's the interesting part is that I don't think that many people love the bricks and mortar or love the, you know, linoleum floor or whatever it is, but they, they love what it creates. And then they create that, that association in their mind. Oh, I love real estate because real estate equals freedom equals so many other things. Um, my wife, uh, n- never really loved real estate that much, but, uh, I try and put it in the context of, well, with this, we can, we can do this and this. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely, it's, it seems like I know in, in, in my circle, and I'm sure you could probably relate, it's like everybody's a real estate investor. To me, it's weird to, to talk to people who aren't, but that's just because I mostly just talk to real estate investors. Yeah, I, I quite honestly, I think we're boring for people who don't invest in real estate, yeah. you know, it's who, because when I find it's very all consuming. So, you know, most of the people I know in real estate, you know, we don't have a lot of, you know, other hobbies or other things that we spend as much time doing as real estate. And a lot of times we get so fired up and so excited about it. We want to share that excitement with people. And, you know, if you share it with people who have no interest in real estate and know nothing there after a while, they kind of get bored. So I think we end up gravitating to people who are as excited about what we are um, and, and it sort of makes the relationships work. And, um, I find a lot of times the best support we get is from other investors too. Like, you know, when I'm yeah. having a bad day or when I'm you know frustrated and struggling with something, um, I, I have other real estate investors I call them and I'm like, have you ever encountered this? Or, you know, here's the situation. How would you handle this? And the support from other investors I find is, is, um, irreplaceable. Oh yeah. It's such a, such a helpful group. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I love about the network over the last two years that I've been able to build just with the podcast and everything. It's, it's crazy. You have a question, you've got somebody you can ask. And now we've got with our, our meetup group, we've got all these, uh, 
people in there that, you know, you got a question about an N4 or something like that. And I'll see people post stuff like that all the time. And it's crazy. How do you replace that? Um, you know, that kind of a network. It's, uh, it's really helpful these days that the way people are connected. And I think real estate investors are really, really helpful in general. They, they want to help and, and, uh, see other people successful too. Cause like you said, it's boring if you don't have friends that are in it with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you're going to go to a baseball game and talk to the people next to you about, you know, the, the house yeah. you're looking at flipping or, you know, what the market's doing or, or anything else. You, you really, you need the people who are in the same space as you and, and you really want to network. That being said, you want to network with two different types of people, right? Like you want the investor support, but you also want to net make sure you're networking with people who don't know anything about real estate, but might want to invest. Mm -hmm. So those then you sort of groom them and over time they become your joint venture partners because you are now the expert in real estate. They want to invest. They understand the benefits, especially after you know, stock market issues and COVID and everything else. Um, they understand and they see the stability of real estate, but they don't know what to do. So they come to you and say, you know, I have this amount of money. Can you help me save for my retirement and, you know, look after my kids in the future? That's absolutely right. Yeah. The people that, that, you know, and I know the people that were around me when I got started there, they were the ones that, that contributed funds, whether, uh, you know, whether it be, um, through an agreement that there would be a partnership or whether it was just, you know, here, here's money, give me a return. That all came from close connections of people who knew me well um, and understood that I understood a lot about real estate. So that, that was, uh, that's so powerful. Like you, like you said, it's very important to have that balance. I will say that even the people who aren't in it are, are usually still interested in talking about it if they're entrepreneurial in any way, right? If they, yeah. if they got that itch and they just, you know, they love seeing a good deal. Um, those are the people who are still going to want to talk about it with you, yeah. even if they don't ever dive in or maybe one day they'll, they'll dive in as a partner or, or a lender. So, yeah. uh, definitely true. You mentioned, um, rich dad, did, did you ever work alongside Ray Ostrander? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. Ray was, uh, Ray was awesome. He was, um, <laughs> he's got such personality and, uh, he was teaching, I think he was teaching the property management course while I was teaching mm-hmm. the negotiations course and the lease options course. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta get him on here eventually. I, I tried to coordinate that, and he, he's always in the states. Well, actually, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in a while, but uh, when I did, when I did speak with him, he was just back and forth all the time. But yeah, so lots of, lots of people uh, I got to interview yet. But um, when did you start? So about fifteen years ago, right? So where, whereabouts were you investing? So we, we started off investing in New Market, which is uh, where my husband is from, where he grew up. And, um, then when we got married, that was where we lived as well was, was new market. So, uh, it was a great market to invest hugely expensive now, like just, it's really hard to, to find, you know, deals there where the the numbers work, but I'm finding that's kind of an issue across the board. Like I have a lot of coaching clients I'm working with and we're looking in, you know, most of the communities sort of off the 401 and Southern Ontario, it is really hard to find income properties that cash flow. You really need to be branching out into some of the different strategies now mm-hmm. for, for the numbers to really be making sense these days. Off the 401 is tough and unless you go down all the way to Windsor. But uh, there, yeah. Yeah, Windsor in the student in the student game you can make some good cash flow. Um, which I'm in students uh, student investing 
in London. So I have cash flow there. But if I were to buy it at the prevailing market rates, it would be it would be very, very tight. Um, unless you do the lying to yourself type of cash flow spreadsheet, which so many people like to do. <laughs> you know, tell, tell me something though. With the student market, what what for, what changes do you foresee as a result of COVID? Because I have some thoughts on sort of what I think is going to happen in the student market, but I'm, I'm really eager to hear what you think is going to happen. Like what is 2021, 2022? What do those look like to you? Mm. What changes do you foresee? Uh, I, I'm extremely concerned, um, not to frighten anybody who's in this game. I probably have the most to be concerned about, uh, you know, compared to most people who are listening to this, if they own student rentals, but, uh, I mean, I look at it and I see a, I see a very strong potential that we lose um, we lose a lot of demand for student housing because enrollment drops. Um, specifically, I could see that in the next year. I could see a lot of people deferring their first year. I don't know the stats on that yet, but September is right around the corner. Um, if I were going into first year, you can bet there is absolutely no way I would be entering first year online. I, I want to go meet people, live in res, have fun. Like that's, that's a student experience. So I could see a bunch of people deferring this year, which would ultimately affect um, the demand for student rentals the following year, depending yeah. on residence capacity. Uh, but it also may result in, in some next year when the double hope, I would call it a double cohort uh, may come mm-hmm. through if, if things normalize. Um, then at that point, uh, there would be a surge in demand. Um, or we may see a bunch of people who are in first year that don't live in res because, because, uh, there's, um, there's really just not enough capacity in res because you've got two years coming in all at once. So I, I don't know exactly what we'll see. Uh, those are, are some of my thoughts. Um, you know, if we get a normalization over the course of the next year, um, uh, some of the other possible concerns are maybe people shift away, uh, from schooling a little bit, um, you know, seek online. I don't see that as a major threat all at once, but I think that that's a, that's a potential long-term trend. Mm-hmm. And, um, what else? I mean, as far as, uh, the current situation goes, I'm okay until the end of April, all my leases are, are secure till then. Um, what it's really going to affect for me is the re-renting process, which I usually start in October. So this year it's going to be funny. We're going to be like sending out emails. Hey guys, I know you're not actually at school, but, um, <laughs> I do see a lot of them are going to come back though. They want to get away from home. They want to go live in London. So, um, it's, it's still going to move. There's still going to be people there. That's good. That's good. What are your thoughts though? I don't, I don't want to be the only one giving an opinion here. <laughs> well, what I sort of figured is what may happen and keeping in mind, like, you know, when I started university, I was a year older than the students are who are starting now. So, um, but what I could see is a lot of parents being very concerned for students because of the shared space, not necessarily going away to school, but because when they come home at night, they're sharing a space with X number of students who might go home on the weekends and there's just so much exposure, right? Like you look at something like a few years ago, there was a Norwalk outbreak in one of the residences. So what I could see happening is definitely more interest in off-campus housing and more interest in like the bachelor or the one bedroom, like people Mm -hmm. being willing to pay a little bit more to have that private space. Yeah, I could see that for sure, as opposed to just, you know, I only have my own room, but I share my bathroom and I share my kitchen. And, you know, I have all these common areas in the building, I could definitely see there being an uptick in the in the smaller units where people can live and have their own space. Yeah, so that's where I'm fortunate. I consider it fortunate and some, some what unfortunate, but I, a lot of mine are, are, um, on, they all have en suites. 
uh, only one of my student rentals actually doesn't have that. Um, so, so as far as that goes, they do have a private bathroom and, uh, that's definitely helpful. I know like that's a, I'm able to charge quite a bit more money by having that. Um, Mm -hmm. so I know that's extremely appealing to people, especially if you have one person that eventually sublets, you know, they don't have to share, uh, share the bathroom. They're still sharing a kitchen, but they can spend most of their time in their bedroom. So, um, yeah, I'm fortunate there, but I think from a convertibility, like just in like looking at London, if I were to pivot and rent to, just a typical homeowner or so, well, a sort of regular family. Um, I would, I would be taking a fair, a fair cut on what I could get. So I was looking at, you know, other ways to pivot. If, if there is a growing demand and you know, we start seeing people travel more and Airbnb comes back, then I'd have a good opportunity to actually Airbnb out the bedrooms because they have ensuite bathrooms. So those are some of the things going through my head uh, to hedge. Another thing is I can still build secondary units in the backyards so, uh, got some land there. So I was kind of just look, looking at, you know, what's the cost going to be to do that? Yeah. You know, can I essentially be in at 1% rule on the, on the addition? And I think that there's a potential to maybe not be quite 1% on my build costs, you know, versus what I get to rent. So if I say, I say I rent, you know, build it for 150 K, um, could I rent it for 1500? So that's going through my head, you know, can I do that? Um, I think that in reality, I'll co- it'll cost me more than 150 to build it, but I'll probably get more than 1500 by the time this all comes around because I really do see um, massive inflation coming for, for Ontario and for Canada in general. And uh, it's going to push rents up. I really do think it will. Yeah. We'll see though. I, I think too, like uh, that's what I've actually spent a lot of time in the last six weeks or so talking about with a number of my coaching clients is when they have properties, making sure that they're being utilized to the highest capacity. You know, it's infinitely less, it's more cost effective to to go and add, you know, a basement apartment or to add, you know, a coach house for a hundred or 150,000 than to go out and try and buy a brand new property because I mean, there's bidding wars and there's all kinds of, you know, financing can be a challenge and everything. It makes a lot more sense to take everything in your portfolio right now and optimize it before you start looking at bringing in additional, additional properties. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a few properties that are, are reasonably deep. Um, one of them is like 140. And I don't think that that's going to be enough to build much of an addition because I already built a big addition on the back, but I can build more. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just actually having the space. So uh, we'll see. But I have another property that's got like a 200, it's 230 feet uh, mm-hmm. deep. Um, so I've got room. I mean, I could technically build a detached um, secondary unit. However, if I do that, um, I need to go through site plan approval in London. So that's a little bit of a pain. Um, you know, they'll ask me to do a neighborhood character study. How does this look compared to the neighbors and sound study? Cause it's near a, near a railroad. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that I consider when I'm, when I'm going up and, you know, I'm, I'm choosing which battles to pick. Um, the fewer people I need a yes from in the process is usually the path I try and take the less, the less resistant path because London can be a little bit bureaucratic as I'm sure many cities can be. Um, but I I noticed like even what I hear coming back to me, you know, about Windsor, you know, and I, I have, um, I have somebody I'm working with uh, right now, one of my, my coaching students uh, who's converting uh, a lot, changing the zoning mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the feedback he's getting from the city there compared to the feedback I get in London is insane. Like he's like, yeah, we, we would approve a spot rezone of one lot. I'm like, 
they literally specifically tell me they will not do that in London. Like no yeah. chance, never going to happen. So uh, every city is a little different. You just got to know how to pick your battles. And I think a lot of it depends where the city is at too. Like I definitely know, you know, a lot of the, the landlords and the investors in sort of the GTA markets and some of the bigger markets, they've had real challenges with, with rent strike. And when you're in oh, yeah. some of like the smaller markets, the more distant markets, you know, it's not, it's not as much of an issue. Like there's definite, there's pros and cons to large markets and, and small markets. And I think it's really just about educating yourself. I mean, it's the same thing in Kirkland Lake where, you know, generally we're able to, if we have a vision in mind and it's going to be something that's beneficial for the, for the town, then, you know, we, we work on it and, you know, we can, you know, message the politicians on Facebook and, and, you know, connect with the mayor and say, we have this plan and, and, you know, this is our vision, you know, can you guys help us figure out a way to make this happen? Um, I think when you're in a lot of the bigger centers, like you said, I mean, London has what, 250, 300? No, the greater area is 450. Um, but London itself, I think is around 350. Yeah. London. So proper, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, that's a huge community and they, they don't shift or, or change easily compared to, you know, some of the smaller ones. And when you've got smaller communities, it's funny because so much of what happens in politics, you know, they're complaining about lack of affordable housing. And then the political decisions that are made sometimes make it more difficult for us to be able to afford additional housing options because it's supply and demand. So if the supply yeah. goes up, the, de the demand goes down and the prices go down, right? But yeah. when they make it so hard for us to be able to provide that supply, then they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Well, that's kind of what government does, right? Like, <laughs> my listeners will will uh, know where I stand on this, but um, governments only destroy value; they can't create it. So uh, they consume value, um, and and they and destroy is probably more accurate because uh, the free market must function. You can't you can't create heaven on earth. You have to allow people to to create their own way. And in my opinion, um, yeah. so so when they they you know these affordable housing programs, like you look at all of our restrictions. There was a brief couple of weeks there where all the forms were down on the landlord tenant board you you still can't evict anybody right now i mean it, you're basically taking landlords and gut punching them nonstop, uh, yeah. and then expecting them to to create units and want to rent them out to tenants yeah. it's it's the most um asinine uh, approach to stimulating investment in our in ontario uh, where we desperately need it we don't have enough housing um so you know they could say one thing and, and do another, which it seems to be uh, the way it goes. Um, I, I just think that it's too many people get sold on this notion. Okay. We need special programs. No, we don't need programs. What we need to do is, is create a fair market that treats yeah. all parties fair. And when yeah. people are treated fair, they play the game. When people don't feel the game is fair, they don't play. And that's, no. that is, is Canada in a nutshell. It's becoming more and more that way. I know we're getting, <laughs> we're getting political, but I think it's an important <laughs> issue that, that people, the people understand. Absolutely. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think enough politicians understand what it's like, because I think if they realized what they were creating, they might take a different approach to things. I mean, it, it just, you look at the situations where the government has their, you know, they run their own affordable housing, like in Toronto, and, you know, look at, is it Thunder Bay or North Bay or Sudbury, someone anyways, um, just wrote off half a million dollars in bad debt. Like if the government was so good at providing affordable housing, then people would want to live there and it would be a great place to live. And the reality is they're terrible at providing housing and it's way more expensive for them to create a unit than it is to make it easy for someone, for an investor to create a basement apartment. It costs way less money and they don't have to fund it. 
Well, right, because you know, governments will tender the big projects, but small projects, they don't really tender them. They have no idea what a fair price is. It's not their game. They get into it. They waste money. They have an inferior product. Uh, it just, you know, governments can't, they can only destroy value. We'll go back to that point. But on, on the notion of, of small government and why small government makes sense, and, and in other words, government get out of the way and let people create value. Because when you let people uh, be creative, um, you know, find solutions, amazing things happen. Like, think about it. I like to refer back to this for any, um, you know, potential um, strong socialists that, that are listening or watching. Um, I like to bring it back to this. So 1776 to 1913 in the US, there was no income tax. And we have, you know, we went from uh, horse and a lantern for, for like 5,000 years before that to some of the most incredible creations that happened in a period of 130 years. Yeah, the airplane, the automobile, the light bulb, the wireless telegraph, electricity, um, and, and uh, so many more that, I'm, that aren't even coming to mind. All in a zero t- tax structure. Again, going back to the fact that when you know the game is fair and you know no one's going to take your, what you get, um, you'll play. And, and you'll, you'll create and, you know, compare that to what do we get in the Soviet Union? We didn't, didn't really get a whole lot of anything, right? China, they take ideas. They don't create ideas. They take the ideas and then they create the product. Um, and uh, again, making the game unfair for all of us. So I know we're getting a little abstract here, but I think it's so, so important uh, that people understand that. And then we can kind of give our politicians feedback to try and steer this back to something that really helps all landlords to say, let's let investors go out and create value. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, when you when there's no accountability for tenants, then the tenants who are out there and they're amazing, they get penalized and punished right along with with the the tenants who don't pay their rent, who don't look after the property and don't get along with their neighbors. You know, I think there should be a benefit to tenants like I'm an amazing tenant. So I think there should be benefits to that. And right now there really isn't. There's just no accountability for positive or negative on, you know, and in some ways it's on both sides. Um, obviously most of the landlords I deal with are, are on the up and up and they're, they're more, um, ethical and fair and doing what they can, but, um, tenants should be mad too about the condition of the landlord tenant board and, and the processes and everything going yeah, on. Yeah. It just hurts everybody. If you're a bad landlord, you're going to get found out. Like yeah. people are going to talk. You won't survive in this business. I mean, some do for the short term and maybe the odd one does get through, uh, but if you just let people talk, they'll say, Oh no, no, you don't want to rent there. It's horrible experience. And, and it gets around. I actually saw this thing floating around on Facebook, which I think is kind of hilarious, but this person actually took a storefront billboard, like the the billboard over top of the storefront. And they, they put this person owes me $16,800 in rent for the last 13 months. And I can't evict him. (laughs) Basically just advertising to the world that this person's stealing and, uh, you know, please help kind of something like that. I forget exactly what it said, but there is accountability. If you let the market do its thing, there is accountability for actions. It will happen. The challenge is I think that she might end up in in trouble because it violates, if he was really to complain, it violates privacy rules, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I understand the absolute fear and the desperation and the motivation that comes from something like that. Mm -hmm. The challenge is it's still not going to motivate him to pay his rent. And in actual fact, she could very well be the one who ends up in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not encouraging it, but I still think it's kind of of humorous. (laughs) Yeah. So, So getting back to you, you're in Kirkland Lake now. So that's much further north, right? Yeah, uh, I'm about seven hours north of Toronto. Seven hours north, so north of Sudbury, um, oh, but yeah. east northeast of that, right? Yeah, uh, a little bit. Just drive all the way up Highway 11, and you can't miss us. Can't miss you. Okay. Um, 
What's the population of Kirkland, Kirkland Lake? Depends who you talk to between eight and 10,000. Eight and 10,000. So, so you were saying that's the type of town where you can get things done. Small government, they, they listen, you can talk to real people and they can, they can make real change. So it's not so bureaucratic. Yeah, it it isn't. And, and it's, you know, it's easy to communicate with people. You know, if you want to communicate with everyone in Toronto, like you have to go to, you know, radio and, and newspaper and television, and you have to go all these different directions, you know, I find in a lot of smaller communities, they sort of have their preferred form of communication. Like up here, for the most part, it's Facebook. So there's all kinds of groups on Facebook. You know, we don't have um, consignment stores necessarily. We have one, but, um, you know, a lot of people, they'll buy and sell items on Facebook. And, and you know, it, there's a real sense of community up here. And a lot of people know each other. Like, it's very rare for me to be able to go to the grocery store and leave without seeing at least a few people that I know. So it's just, it's a different feel. And, you know, having grown up in Scarborough and then moved to Newmarket and then moving here, it's really strange. It's just a different, and and even with COVID, you know, when the July 24th came around and everybody started wearing masks, we hadn't been wearing masks up here for months. So all of a sudden we went to, you know, life is pretty much normal, just wash your hands more, to being it being a lot like it is down south and we we weren't there so this has been a bit of an adjustment too oh okay so yeah your, your municipality adopted it as well yeah i think we had to i think the the public health sort of mandated across the board that all of the district had to adopt these policies and i completely understand why mm-hmm. i'm not disagreeing with it in any way shape or form it was just really surreal for us to go yeah. on like we only had i think the last cases we had a few in in april and that was it Right, so all right. of a sudden, it was this thing that was so far away and, and so, you know, kind of removed for us is all of a sudden right back mm-hmm. in our faces. Yeah, strange times for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. where, where you are, uh, is your weather actually a little bit cooler? Do you notice it's a little cooler up there? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a little cooler. Uh, we don't tend to get as humid. But the summers are are remarkably like down south where you see the huge differences is the winters. Like we can have, you know, stretches where it's minus 40 to minus 50 degrees for, you know, up to a week, a week and a half at a time. You wouldn't see that in Toronto. It wouldn't get that cold um, in part, I think, because the uh, the Great Lakes sort of help to kind of moderate the, the ambient temperature, whereas us up here, um, I mean, last, I think it was last year we had about 15 feet of snow over the winter. Wow. but you, the way I look at, at this situation and at life overall, really, is you can either, you know, fight it or you can join it and find the best possible outcome. So we have a place now where literally we, we open the front door, we put on our snowshoes and we head out and, yeah. you know, we can go hiking and boating and fishing. And, you know, we really embrace kind of the northern lifestyle and, and everything that goes with it. And it's I, I know there's a lot of people during COVID who've left the city and gone to their cottages and, you know, maybe there's some people who's, who are going to make the decision that, you know what, I'm going to work from home and maybe even live here because oh, yeah. it's uh, just a completely different pace of life. And it's, um, it's pretty amazing when you embrace it. Yeah. So you feel like you're in cottage country up there a little bit? hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Cottage country is booming this, uh, this summer. I know. Yeah. Um, so my mother-in-law and my brother-in-law, they have cottages up in Wyerton and, uh, well, Sobble beach area. And it's just, uh, just nonstop booking, like nothing available anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So good, good money in that. So that, you know, that's probably one of those ones that we're, 
you know, a lot of people were kind of worried, well, what's going to happen? But as soon as, you know, the, the lockdown kind of happened, people were like, well, might as well be at the cottage. If I, yeah. can't, uh, if I can't be going around and going to work, yeah. um, might as and well. It's funny to think of like the ripples of how everything's going to play out. Like mm-hmm. it could be in the future in Toronto, you know, all those huge office buildings that had so many people and all the people who crammed into the subways and the go trains and everything else. Like it might be a long time before those recover. Maybe some of those office buildings are going to become, you know, condos in the future mm-hmm. and, and that'll ease some of the housing because once people start working from home, like how do you make them go back to the office? How do you make them give up two or three hours a day commuting to work in an office mm-hmm. when they were able to be just as productive, if not more so working from home? Yeah. Assuming that's the case. And I don't know the stats on that, but uh, I've, I've thought the same, you know, with Toronto, um, as much as I think, you know, eventually it will come back. Um, its values are just so inflated. And, and then, you know, now, now you've got to expect at least some sort of exodus from Toronto, people just realizing, Hey, if I can work from home, I don't need to be in this expensive place. And then you've got offices that are downsizing. So they're going to convert units into res. Then you have all the people who their Airbnb market just dried up and they're going to list. And then all the people who uh, have taken a hit on rent because the supply of rentals went way up, and yeah. then they're going to list because they, you know, they don't really want to, um, they don't really want to have zero cash flow or negative cash flow. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I could see, I could see a short term drop in, in real estate values in, in Toronto, although that hasn't been seen yet. It's just continued yeah. going up. But uh, at the end of the day, I mean, of course, we're pulling out the crystal ball here. I think, I think all of these prices everywhere across the board are all going to go up in the long run because uh, just because of the amount of currency that's been injected into the system and we don't have more goods. In fact, everything's compromised. Supply chains are compromised and it's very expensive to build right now. Even like lumber's way up. No one can get lumber right now. So um, it's going to be an interesting time, right? No one knows what to make of this. It's totally, totally unprecedented. So Um, Kirkland Lake, are you investing there right now? Okay, so is that your 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 main investment center, or are you investing elsewhere more so? No, well, it, it sort of depends which strategy you're talking about. So, in terms of income properties, I have some in St. John, New Brunswick, but most of them are up north, up here in and around Kirkland Lake. Um, okay. But in terms of rent to owns, I'm still looking in uh, markets in Southern Ontario. I'm still active okay. down there. So, what's your portfolio uh, look like right now? In terms of percentages. Yeah, like what different type doors you have in different areas? Like is St. John a big center for you or a small area, you know, a small piece of your your investment? St. John, we're around 45 doors, I think. Okay. Um, In Kirkland Lake, we own slash manage. We're up over 400 now. Um, And then we have a few rent to owns, various places, various communities across across Southern Ontario. Okay, so Kirkland Lake, are you... You, so your own manager that like manage like JV um, properties or is, are you managing yeah. for other people as well? We, we originally started out because um, having educated ourselves and figuring out how we wanted our property management done. Um, we, we originally worked with um, some property managers up here and um, our, we're pretty labor intensive in terms of like keeping uh, in terms of, like notices to tenants and and uh, making sure that we stay on top of everything that's going on in our buildings. Um, so we ended up deciding it was actually easier just to hire to open our own company and hire a staff person to do it like exactly the way we wanted it to follow our exact processes, as opposed to trying to you know have someone who already has their processes and trying to implement our mm-hmm. processes on them. 
Um, and so we just managed our own stuff for a while. And then, um, and then other, you know, people that we knew started coming up here and asking us if we'd manage and we've sort of grown from there. Okay. Yeah. I like the, uh, the onboarding of this, of, of the different parts of the process. Like, yeah, of, cu- of course you can't do it with everything, but with management, you know, the way you want it done. Yeah. No other manager is going to do it just the way you want it. So pros yeah. and cons, of course, onboarding means you have a lot more work and startup and investment of time up front. But then once you get going, it, it you know, that's what I did. And I, I, I think it's the better way for me where I'm at, uh, which obviously you thought the same. So 400 doors in Kirkland Lake. I mean, that sounds like it's a good fraction of the, the town's doors. <laughs> Kirkland Lake's not that small. The, the interesting thing about Kirkland Lake that most people don't realize is that there's a lot of people who are in town working shifts and they're just here to work. So there's a good chunk of the population who, you know, for census purposes, yeah, you know, between 8,000 8, and 10,000 people say, this is my principal address. But there's a lot of people who are in town who are renting for a period of time, who then go home for a period of time. You know, some of the mines, they have 14 on, 14 off, or they have okay. five and four and four and five different kinds of shifts. So, I mean, there's guys here who are paying rent every month and need a place to live and, a, and you know, a place to cook and do laundry and everything else. And, but they just don't, they don't appear anywhere on anybody's radar because, you know, they consider New Brunswick home or they consider, you know, somewhere in Quebec home or whatever else. So it's a bit of an interesting community from that perspective, because there's this whole kind of subpopulation that isn't really on anybody's radar anymore, anywhere. But I'd be, I'd love to know, like, what percentage of the people renting here are only here part-time and call somewhere else home? Oh, okay. So they're bringing a lot of people come in for mining. Is it? Is that why yeah. they're coming in for mining okay. for forestry? Um, yeah, because Veterans Affairs and some of the other big employers in the town, obviously, people move here for that. But mining in particular, with with the shift work, there's lots of guys. They can come here, work for you know twelve hours a day for fourteen days. So all they literally do is eat and sleep, and then they go home again. But they still need somewhere good to be able to to rent. So we have a, a lot of tenants like that where they're here for part of the month and gone for part of the month, but they still pay a full month's rent. So oh, I was going to ask if you were renting directly to the employers, if they were putting them up in your, your housing. Sometimes it depends. It really depends on the quality. So typically like the, the true, you know, mining guys, the guys who are down there every day working their butts off in the mines, um, they would rent from us directly. But when the uh, local companies have executives that they need housed, then they would come to us directly. So one of our areas of specialty is providing higher end rentals that are more in line with what people coming from, you know, Toronto and Vancouver and, you know, major centers would expect. Um, understandably, you, you know, you don't find a lot of places like a condo, a downtown condo in Toronto. You don't find that up here. It's just not what is the the norm in terms of rental housing and availability. So we've really focused on, you know, when we fix up some units, you know, we'll always leave a portion of them that are, you know, more affordable for day-to-day use, but we definitely have some of our higher-end ones. They're furnished, um, you know, and you rent them by the month and, and they're meant for executives. Okay. So you do furnish uh, a large portion of furnished rentals, I'm guessing like quartz countertops and stainless steel and that kind of stuff or no? Not, not quite that, that fancy, but certainly, you know, clean, new, um, yeah. you know, in, in good condition. I mean, you know, some, sometimes, you know, when you're in towns like Kirkland Lake, where some of the housing stock is older, you know, you open the front door and walk in and it feels like you're on a boat, you know, you're a li- little bit oh. leaning off to the right hand side and you just yep. kind of, 
you know, that feeling there. And um, I think, you know, the it's, it's just, it's different. It's right. different than, than it is in Toronto. And it took me a while to, to be able to adjust to that. Well, yeah, you really do need to go in and understand your community. It's so hard oh, to just go yeah. pick a new market because you have to understand what's so unique. Like, like you said, statistics can't capture no. the fact that people come into that town and then leave. You really have to, you know, go there, talk to the locals, kind of see what's happening day to day to get a better feel of, of, of how that market behaves. So it sounds like you've, you've uh, figured that part out. But on the point of, of the rentals and, and making it better, it's, yeah, it's all relative to what you're competing against. If yeah. you can be that much better than every everything else just by not having wonky floors and you know having a flat floor and a nice clean <laughs> modern modern space that's exactly. that's awesome why why do more just just do what the the market needs i mean i always like to be on the nicer side just to kind of attract that maybe a little bit better a tenant but uh but it uh, sounds like you got it figured out i i honestly think that property managers are one of one of the most underutilized resources for real estate investors like mm-hmm. you think about everything that property managers know they know the market for sale they know the market for rent they know who you know the average tenant is like they just know so much about properties and so many real estate investors you know that the property manager is kind of the afterthought of you know okay well i'm going to start investing and everybody just goes to okay i'm going to run numbers yeah. And, and we really, this is something I work on quite a bit with my coaching clients is plan, prepare, execute. Running numbers is more along the, more in the execute phase than it is in the plan and prepare. And we really should be, you know, gathering market knowledge and information and making decisions about where the, the economic fundamentals and the, the rental market and the sale market, where those are all sort of ideal and property mm-hmm. managers for the most part know a lot about that. Yeah, absolutely. I actually used to, when I was using a property manager, I would send him stuff and I'd say, Hey, I'm thinking, you know, I found this. What do you, what do you think? And he would say, ah, well, I have a little harder time renting there. Like you get this, this feedback that you wouldn't know otherwise, right? If you haven't rented down there, then how are you going to know? They, they're in it all day long, every day. So yeah, I agree with you 100%. Now, don't you feel though, like you kind of owe them one, right? Like if you want to, if you want to go on board with, uh, with your own property management, but then you're constantly utilizing uh, people in that way. How do you manage that to, to keep those relationships strong, even if you're not necessarily going to use their services? That's an interesting question. It really depends. Um, with, with Kirkland Lake, I, again, I think it's a little bit different here because, you know, nobody's going to move up here to manage their own properties. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're going to, we're so far from Toronto and, and where most investors live that nobody's going to want to do that. Um, I mean, there's different ways you can do it. You can hire them as a consultant. Oh, you know, yeah, you, you could say, okay, you know what? I, I'd like to pick your brain. I'd like, you know, a report. I'd like to be able to run properties by you, you know, and I'm willing to pay you X amount to do it. Um, but, you know, as a property manager, it's advantageous to me to know what's going on in my town mm-hmm. as well. So it's advantageous to me to keep a good relationship with other landlords, with other property managers and with investors in town because, you know, when we stop seeing each other as competition and start seeing each other as support, there's a lot of really amazing things that can happen. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think competition needs to kind of go out of your mind to a certain degree and and then think more, okay, how can we be complimentary? How can we, how can we be creative? Um, and, and, you know, not step on each other's toes and just do things a little bit differently. So, um, good point. What do you typically invest in in Kirkland Lake? Like, what's your what's your typical property? Is it a triplex, a duplex, a single family, uh, 
a 20 unit building yeah no we we prefer the bigger things uh the the bigger buildings i mean you can acquire duplexes here you know if you there's i think there's some for sale that are you know 60 80 100 thousand dollars for a duplex now granted they need work they need a bunch of work but they're still a lot more affordable here than they are you know off the 401 corridor um but my preference you know most of the time when it comes to financing we're really restricted by the number of mortgages so it makes more sense to buy a four unit than to buy a two unit and it makes more sense to buy a 20 unit than it does to buy a 10 unit so you know as long as you have the support and and the knowledge to be able to think bigger then i always encourage investors to think bigger because if you're if you're based on your financial situation your mortgage broker says to you you're going to be able to get four mortgages and then you're done so why wouldn't you get four fourplexes instead of four duplexes it's a good point. And, you know, specifically, if you get over that four unit threshold, then you can get into commercial lending where mm-hmm. the more, the better. And, uh, and they want yeah. you to scale to a certain, as long as you're doing it right. As long as you're meeting the requirements, uh, the yeah. more, the better. Um, and, and usually the biggest obstacle when you get into the commercial buildings is the initial costs, right? You've got the application yeah. fees and you've got, you know, the, the uh, environmentals and, and, you know, all those kinds of fees. So they're mm-hmm. definitely a little bit more expensive to get into. Um, but when you're not looking at a building that has like an elevator and a concierge and all that kind of stuff, you know, when you're looking at walk-ups, it's really not that different. Right. From, from a duplex to, to a multi-unit. You just... As a property manager, I'm a little bit more careful who I put in the bigger multi-unit buildings because I don't need phone calls every night complaining about noise and this and that. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's really like, as long as you're not talking about a huge difference in the mechanical systems, generally, I don't find there to be that much difference. So you're buying like a 20 unit building with a central boiler system. Um, Would anything be metered independent, like separately, maybe just electrical is metered separately? Hydro for sure. Hydro yeah. for sure. But they're still um, doing their own water and sewer. Your, your, your building still pays water and sewer. Yeah. And heat okay. generally as well. And heat. Okay. Um, okay. So do you have one that you've done? Like, have you done a burr? Is that your typical approach? Or are you typically going in on a joint venture? Like what's your, what's your typical acquisition strategy? So we generally buy like like stuff that's in really rough shape, really bad shape. Um, we've sort of changed our business model over the years, and what we've wanted to do is work, be able to provide investors from you know Toronto and the GTA um, with the opportunity to be able to invest in Kirkland Lake without having any of the stress or any of the headaches. So we've actually built a, a full service construction division. So we can do everything from day-to-day maintenance all the way up to like major full-scale renovations. So we're in the process right now of doing a burr uh, on a five-unit building, and we're assisting an investor with doing a burr on a 12-unit as well. Okay. Could we do one of those as a case study? Like, which one are you more familiar with the numbers on? The the five-unit is further underway. All right. So yeah, let's talk about the five-unit. So what's the purchase price on that? Uh, It was 100000 well, that's nice for five units for a hundred K five units around here. I mean, in, in Hamilton now, like they're going to like 180, 200,000, even not in good shape. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Like double. Oh, sorry. Not way more than double. No, I mean, uh, yeah, 200 per unit. So yeah, you'd be a million bucks on a five unit almost. You could be 800 to a million. Yeah. Um, okay. So what would you be putting into that? Like what's your, what's your um, estimated renovation and carrying cost? Um, about 200 for the reno and probably about, uh, about 15 to 20 for the carrying, depending on how long everything takes. Wow. 
wow, you can, you can get something for a hundred that you need to put 200 into. And what's, well, my next question is going to be, what's it worth? Um, so your reno and carry is, is 220 then, um, we'll call it. And, uh, okay. So your purchase and improve is about 320. Yep. And what do you figure it's worth at the end? We're aiming for 500. My guess is we'll get around 475. Okay. So your new mortgage at the end, you're, are you guys going to go for 75% on that? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so 75% LTV would get you. So 75% because once you're, once you're over four units, it's pretty hard to get 80% unless you would insure it with CMHC, right? That's pretty much the only way you're going to do that. Uh, and if you're, if you're going to insure it with CMHC, you might as well go with 15% down and right. Now, I've never specifically done it, but anyone who has done it tells me that CMHC usually doesn't agree on your valuation, so they'll value it lower. So you're not really getting uh, yeah. only 15% down. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a little trick they pull, but uh, I haven't done it myself, so I can't speak from direct experience. Um, okay, so it looks like, so your new mortgage would be 356250 Mm-hmm approximately if you got that $475,000 appraisal mm-hmm. and um, you're all in at that point for about 320,000. So now you'd be pulling out 36,000, which would be kind of okay. Uh, I'd be all right with that deal. Um, yeah. So 36,000 in your pocket. Now let's dig into what you expect for rent on that across the five units. What are you thinking? Well, it really depends. Um, obviously, if you're going to do some of the units as furnished, which, you know, if you're going to do a reno of it to this extent, I usually like to have a portion of the building at least that yeah. is furnished rentals. Um, okay. So it would depend, you know, which units you picked. Uh, this particular building has um, a bachelor, two one bedrooms, and two two bedrooms, if okay. I remember correctly. So depending on how many you decide to do furnished versus unfurnished, uh, my preference when we do rentals like this is to put Wi-Fi in for the entire building and have some other nice little kind of carrots to, to make it really easy to rent. Um, I, I would like to think 4000 4500 depending on the... For the whole building? Yeah. Okay. So so if we want to be conservative, we say 4000 maybe? Sure, yeah. Okay, so 4000 What kind of vacancy rate would you typically use in your numbers just to be safe? The nicer units, the vacancy rates are not high. You could go with 5% and, and come in under that easily. Okay. So yeah, just apply uh, apply 5% there. So taxes, what do you figure they'll be? I don't know. It depends when MPAC uh, realizes that... That you renovated? <laughs> that yeah. we renovated. So are you thinking um, like 5000 bucks or 4000 bucks eventually? Or no, not even... Not even uh, 4000 would probably be might even be a bit on the high side, but let's say 4,000. Okay. 4,000 insurance. You're probably going to be around what, uh, 3,000 maybe you think my insurance guy, probably not. I'd say maybe around 2,500, 2,500. Okay. Um, maintenance. Would you just assume 5%? Yeah. Because everything in it, like electrical's new, plumbing's new, like heating's new, everything's new. So, so that, that renovation is not a full gut, but you're, you're pulling out all the, the mechanical systems and replacing them. And then probably a cosmetic update to everything. Yeah. Do you do all your windows as well in that budget? Uh, this particular building had some, had some windows that were pretty good and the roof wasn't bad either. Mm-hmm. So we were able to save some of it. Okay. Utilities. What are you figuring for, uh, for that building like on a oh. year? 
again, it depends. Like we always rent plus hydro. We never ever include hydro unless we don't have a choice. Um, so, but if it's a furnished unit, typically they want everything all inclusive. So depending on what, what we would go with, I would say maybe put in, um, put in a thousand for heat or for hydro, sorry. And for, uh, for the year. Yeah. Okay. Depending on how, you know, what the, the breakdown was or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, and then maybe three to 4,000 for our heat. Okay. So 3,500. Yeah. Okay. 3,500 for gas for the year. And then water sewer is going to be a, a cost too, or you're saying the thousand included water and sewer. No, no, the, the, the thousand was just the hydro, um, for water sewer, try 15. Around it depends up here. Some buildings are, are, um, metered and some aren't. So it's, mm. it varies by building depending obviously on the usage and whether it's metered or, or flat billing. You have flat billing on, on buildings. Wow. Oh, okay. That's kind of, the, the town keeps trying to get people to convert and we're like, no, no that's no. okay. <laughs> yeah. Not interested in that. No. Yeah. Okay. So, um, two other things that I would typically estimate for are lawn and snow removal, like lawn care and, and snow removal yeah. for a year. Would you be like 1500 on, on that? Yeah. That, that's like not that. about reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, any sort of garbage disposal or would tenants just take care of that? Nope. Garbage goes out to the curb and it's paid for as part of the property. Tax. Okay. So you wouldn't really have any other expenses on that place. Okay. So oh, management eventually probably. Well, management. Yeah. So I just have management plugged in here at 5%. Just, uh, I don't know what, what would, what is a safe assumption for management? Say it was managed just to show people if you had it managed, what it would, what it would um, like. well, our, our property management fee is 10%. 10%. Okay. What we use when we're running numbers is we usually put in 13 because on top of property okay. management fees, then you've got fill rates for any vacancies and then yeah. you have HST. So we sure. just put management at 13% across the board. That's not exactly what we charge, but it yeah. gives a more accurate picture than just doing 10. That's, that's smart. Yeah. Okay. That's a nice way of simplifying it. it. I always like to have a good shortcut. Okay. So if you're worth, uh, 475,000, I'm just, I'm just crunching your numbers, even, even from a mortgage standpoint. Um, so it looks like you, according to these numbers, we just calculated, like normally the bank wants to see 1.2 to one in terms of a debt coverage ratio. And for anybody who's not following with that, you can download my, my cash flow spreadsheet off of my website, just Andrew-Hines forward slash cash flow, um, or sorry.com forward slash cash flow. Um, okay. So we're, we're just a little short. So, so I don't know, the bank might make some slightly different assumptions too, right? We're being pretty conservative here. Uh, I'm sure there's a way to make that fit in their model, but so it looks like the building would cash flow about 290 based on everything we put in there, assuming full management at 13%. Um, of course, if you're doing it all yourself and it was your project and you just wanted to look at, okay, what's, what's actually going into my pocket because of this, you'd be closer to 810. So if we got rid of that management figure there. Um, okay. So in, as far as a return on investment, there is no investment. We can't calculate one, but uh, your total return. So we would have pay down. So in one year, based on a 25 year mortgage at 2.65% random estimate, I know your, your deal might end up being different. Um, so based on that, you would be getting uh, $10,900 in pay down in a year, your passive appreciation. I don't know. See, that's the thing we got to, what, what's, what's reasonable for your market for appreciation? 
we use two percent as an estimate, but we're pretty conservative in our numbers. I, I think. Yeah, I think you're going to be higher than that. I think you're going to be a lot higher than that. But, but yeah, even if we were just being conservative, so you'd be ninety five hundred dollars in an appreciation based on the four seventy five starting point, four hundred seventy five thousand starting point, and then your cash flow on a year uh, would be about thirty five hundred. So that's twenty three thousand nine hundred and forty five dollars a year you're making off of something that paid you or is going to pay you $36,000 up front, which is why we love real estate. <laughs> <laughs> but not off the 401 right now. <laughs> no, not really. No, those are, those are cruel right now. But I mean, I think a lot of people are going to love, you know, when they one do one day do sell, yes. um, you know, they're going to love, they're going to love that part. But uh, then when you try and find a new place to, to buy, that's where you'll not like that. <laughs> yeah. But I think it makes a lot of sense. Like a lot of people try and fit the strategy and the market and they just try to try They say, this is what I, the strategy I want to do. And this is where I want to do it. And they try and smush it together. And the reality is not every strategy works in every market. So mm -hmm. you either pick your strategy and then you'll look for a market where it makes sense or you pick your market and then you look at the strategies that work and you implement them together. I mean, what I see this as is a tremendous opportunity to instead of focusing on, you know, multi-unit and income property acquisitions, yeah, there might be, you know, the odd deal that will come your way that makes a lot of sense. But if you are really committed to investing, you know, where you live, then look at some of the other strategies that are out there. You know, look at rent to owns, look at the duplexing, look at severing, look at coaching. Mm -hmm houses like look at all these different opportunities that are out there and sort of branch out and give yourself the opportunity to you know have one of the two components either the strategy or the, or the market where you're really comfortable and grow from there that's I a great it, piece of advice that's great i think it forces us to be creative instead of just assuming that you know people and i talk to a lot of investors they're starting out they're like i think there's potential but i just don't know like i'm looking at this deal and i'm thinking maybe i'm so new i can't see the potential and a lot of times, you know, if you've run the numbers and it's not working, it's because either the strategy's wrong or the market's wrong. And I think, so to that point, most people in this game, and, and I, there's no fault there. No. It's just what they do. But you, you go to the meetups, you hear everybody else is doing duplex conversions around here because that's the thing that was working in Hamilton and it doesn't yeah. really work anymore because everybody wanted that and they drove up the value of the inventory. So then yes. everybody wanted to buy these crappy bungalows and we're paying, you know, 520 or whatever for them when, when, when they're done, they're worth 620 and you know, your renovations are going to cost, you know, equal to that amount. So, so you're not really getting ahead. Yeah. And, and that's where it goes back to being creative. Like here in Burlington, it's almost like no one even looks at, at, at this market for, for a conversion or anything like that, because you know, that same junky place would probably be 650,000 to buy if, if you could even find that, yeah. um, you know, and that, that would be in a, in a not great area of town. So, so people don't really do that. So yeah, like, like you said, they get a little more creative. Are they severing lots? And that's what I see. I see that working here. There was a lot, um, that I actually had my eye on that an investor had gone and bought the house, <laughs> flipped the house and sold it for what he paid for it. But, uh, then he had a $1.1 million lot that he got not for free, but he yeah. was able to sever off and then sell. Yeah. Um, so I don't know his exact numbers, but I'm assuming that person probably made, you know, $800,000, maybe $700,000 on that lot. Um, yeah. you know, maybe it was a year of a process to complete the severance. And then he maybe sat on the lot for a little bit longer than that. But wow. You know, like if you're getting creative, you can, you can find big money in this game. But uh, I, I really like what you said, either, you know, pick your market 
and then find the strategy that works in that market or you pick your strategy and then pick the market that works for that strategy. Um, I think a lot of people do get hung up on, I want to do it this way and I want to do it right here. Well, no, you got to adapt to what your market um, is working for, working with right now. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, when people are starting out or they're newer investors, sometimes it makes sense to take your capital and do, uh, you know, a couple of private lending deals Mm -hmm. and sort of get your feet underneath you, get used to, you know, looking at the market, analyzing the borrower, analyzing the property and the strategy. And, you know, if you're not able to find deals to do yourself for the first year, then do some private lending, grow your capital and your your worth and invest Mm -hmm. in, you know, spending some time educating yourself. Like it doesn't make sense to buy it to to feel this fear of missing out that so many people fear uh, feel, and then to just buy a property and either break even or lose money on it. Like that's, I mean, yes, you can say, okay, this was a learning experience, but you know, it, there's a lot of people out there who will say, yeah, you know what, I'm looking for a hundred thousand thousand dollars for construction rentals. You know what, if you want to show up a couple of times on the job site and see what I'm up to and and learn a little bit then, you know, I'm welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I offer that. It's the same thing with my coaching clients. You know, I said, you ever want to come up and see what it's like, like, you know, a a day in the life of a property manager or, you know, a a real estate investor, then come on up here to Kirkland Lake. Like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll show you around and we'll show you what it looks like from the inside. I think that's super valuable. And that's actually something I've started, um, including when I talk to people about coaching is like, you know what, come down and like, see the townhouses I'm building, but you know, let's go into a couple of my properties and let's, let's talk about what I did and why I did it. And I think seeing sometimes is, you know, is worth a thousand words. You know, you, you get to actually put your eyes on it, hear the story and, and, you know, kind of piece it together in your head. Uh, I think that that's something that is kind of irreplaceable. And I actually want to do that on the other side. Like, I'd love to, you know, next time I'm in Kirkland Link, I'm going to give you a call. And <laughs> Well, I don't know that you would necessarily by default find yourself here, but the office yeah. open, come on up anytime, like hop on a bus, bring a bunch of people and, uh, you know, more than happy to to show you what you can do for fun and in and around Kirkland Lake. Yeah. Well, it's always cool to see what other people do, right? You know, what do you do different than what I do? And, you know, one thing I'm particularly interested in is you're investing in, in St. John, and I don't think we're going to get to get into detail about it, but, um, how do you find comfort investing so far away? What allows you to be, you know, to sleep at night and not, not worry, uh, when you have investments that down that way? Uh, it's my property manager who mm-hmm. enables me to keep my sanity and be able to handle, you know, mm-hmm. what's what's going on and the ups and downs and that kind of thing. Um, property managers can make or break cash flow when it, when you're talking. I mean, you know, when you're talking about a hundred, one hundred and fifty dollars a door, you know, replace the toilet every month and there goes your cash flow. Yeah. So for me, in order to be able to you know, sleep at night, it's really having the trust and knowing that my property manager is looking out for me. He's not, he's not looking out for himself as only he's looking out for my best interests as well. Right. And you're, you're a pretty good client for, uh, for him or her uh, with 45 doors out that way. So, um, that it obviously, that's a nice win-win, right? You know, you're, you're a big piece of the business, so they want to take care of you. Um, do you know Brock Rogerson? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've spoken a few times. Yeah. Yeah. He's out that way. So I had him on, um, way, way back. I think it was like episode 16 talking about his 200 some odd doors out in, in New Brunswick. Yeah. I think I hear that you're, you're, uh, finally seeing values come up in, uh, in St. John. Yes. It's been a while. We've held on for a while. Um, I, <laughs> when I was starting out investing, I, I definitely made some mistakes. One of my mistakes was not doing a great job with fitting the strategy to the market. 
So I did some rent to owns out there in New Brunswick. And um, I'm happy to say I just sold the last one that I did 10 years ago for what I paid for it. <laughs> so <laughs> single family yeah, yeah. homes, it's been a tough road to go out there. But um, it's uh, definitely the multi units are starting to come back. And it's really yeah. nice to see that. Something to think about is when you factor in inflation, St. John, it's St. John, not St. John's, right? Yeah, St. John's. St. John has actually been going down in value, but it's coming back now. Um, you know, I just think Canada, it's going to come down to on our current path. Where is their existing infrastructure? Sewers, you know, electricity, water, everything, roads in, in place. That's where populations are going to go. And eventually Ontario will just become so ridiculous that people will be going out to St. St. John. So um, yeah. that, uh, that's a great place to be in for the long term, I think. Especially because, you, you know, Brock was saying the starting point for discussion is 2% rule. So he wants to get 2%. Uh, if he's buying for 100000 he wants he wants $2,000 a month in rent. Yeah. Absolutely. You're of a similar opinion? Um, I don't know. We haven't bought out there in a while, so I'm not sure exactly what the purchase to to rent ratio is. I mean, I think anytime you're investing, you should always be going for, for, you know, maximum returns as long as, you know, you're not, as long as you're doing it in in an honest and ethical way with integrity. The way I look at myself, I'm a problem solver. So, you know, bring me into a situation, tell me what your problem is, and I'll look for a solution um, that will, you know, benefit you and benefit me and and any other parties that are involved. And, you know, the more investment strategies I know, the more likely I'm going to be to be able to find a solution to whatever your problem is. Yeah, very well said. Is there anything you'd specifically like to share with our listeners and viewers that we didn't cover yet? Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, this has been fun. I don't normally talk politics. I'm usually like very, you know, very nonpartisan, you know, but, uh, you know, there's getting into some of the government discussion was certainly, uh, certainly interesting. It's not something I, I've delved into much before, but yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's all right. I think it's great. I think I offend people here and there sometimes I, I'm I try and be tactful. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't hide uh, my feelings about things. Um, but I think most of the people who listen here know, know that, <laughs> but, but- uh, We'll see. You, you aren't challenging people's established point of view if you aren't willing to, you know, offend, run the risk of offending people. Right. Sometimes. I mean, if we were all sheeple, then the world would be a really boring place. Oh, yeah. Like on that note, uh, we're in a very concerning time. And I know not everyone thinks that, but um, we've come to this place for like, remember, like, and I don't know, we, we don't remember, but you know, you learn about like back in the day where people's, you know, their, their mother and father were farmers and they taught their, their kid at eight years old, how to milk cows and how to plant seeds and harvest the crops. And, and now we, uh, we give them a iPad and, you know, have them playing angry birds. I don't know what the game of the day is. Uh, candy <laughs> crush. I don't know. Um, you know, things have changed, right? We're, we're, we've, we've sort of become less useful as human beings in general. And I think that there needs to be, um, a really concentrated effort on us educating ourselves about how our system works. How does our banking system, how do our economic system, um, how do, how do our political systems work? And I, I, I see a very large percentage of the population, not the listener base of this podcast per se, because these are a, a lot of entrepreneurs that, that really mm-hmm. do think that this is important to understand this stuff. But a lot of the population don't understand how the system even works to have an educated opinion. There are no educated opinions. There's just complete, oh, I don't get into that. 
Well, unfortunately, that's a very dangerous position in a democracy. That's, that's extremely dangerous. And I, I never thought of it that way. I, I always had my opinions, but I never thought of it that way until this all happened. Because you start to see government overreach, right? You start to see the risks of it. And, and no, everyone talks about the risks of the virus. To me, the risks of the government overreach are 10 times more concerning, like 10 times. And, and the other thing that I find very concerning is when people get all of their information from one media source. Oh, yeah. That, that to me, I, I mean, the, the, the media has a, a vested interest in, you know, being one way or the other, depending on, you know, where their funding comes from and where, you know, their donors are and their sponsorship and everything else. And to me, if you only go to one media source for information, then you're just spouting their exact, you know, opinions and views and, and you don't have a balanced perspective on anything. Yeah, that's just a narrative. You're spouting their narrative, right? I mean, there's a reason like in, in uh, clinical studies, um, peer-reviewed studies, one of the main questions is, what is the funding source? Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the best studies, in my opinion, uh, but I think that there's a lot of a lot that would agree. They like university studies. You know, they were they were funded by the university because it was you know it was part of uh, a course requirement or something. They had to have somebody do a peer-reviewed study, um, and you'll get a less biased study. Everything's biased, but industry bias is concerning, right? If you have the smoking industry do a study on lung cancer and cigarettes, you're going to get a very different answer from you know uh, you know the Heart and Stroke Foundation. That's probably a bad example, but you know somebody somebody more medical. Uh, uh, medically inclined uh, that's more uh, unbiased by that. So yeah, to your point, you know, long, long way of saying that um, everyone has an agenda, you know, everyone has a bias, everyone has, you know, potentially they get paid or, you know, maybe their vacation to the Bahamas is covered and they get to fly on a jet, um, you know, anything, you know, these things contribute to what happens. And, you know, I'll just point people back. Like I had somebody reach out to me on Instagram. Uh, she's Chinese and uh, her family was there and had rental properties before the uh, communist revolution. And just one day uh, the government just said, okay, you can keep the home you live in. These other two are ours. And uh, of course, many, many worse things happened. Uh, 60, it's estimated 60 million people were murdered in the, in the communist revolution in China. Um, Stalinist Russia, 20 million plus. Um, And these are estimates because people just disappeared left and right. So uh, you don't even know. And, um, you know, people are so nonchalant about this. You, oh, we don't get into that. No, we need to get into that. I know I'm not, I'm not trying to sound doomsday. I just think it's very important that we're aware uh, and we hold our government accountable. And and yes, as you said, get different sources of information, not just one. Yeah. So I like to be an alternative source of information. But uh, of course, I'm always just, I, I love just researching and like learning new new uh, uh, points of view. They're not, not saying they're right, but you know, it's nice to hear them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the worst things we can do is stop having productive discussion around issues and challenges mm-hmm. and situations that are that are occurring today and, and in the future and what happened in the past. You know, the worst thing is where we can't say what we think or, or what we feel and be able mm-hmm. to have an honest dialogue about that where everything is suppressed for fear of yeah. you know, repercussions and, and penalties. Yeah. And I've had it happen. I mean, you know, on Facebook, sometimes I post something that I shouldn't or not, not that I shouldn't, but that's clearly going to stir up some feathers and rustle some feathers. <laughs> but what can I do? Right. I mean, I, you have to stand true to what you believe. Right. Um, and I think that that's, that's where I find myself. Like if I, some, some ones I'm like, I, I can't resist. I'm just going to post this. <laughs> we'll see what happens. You know, if you, they say, if you don't stand for something, you fall for anything. So yeah. Yeah. Good one. Good one. Okay. So where can people reach you if they'd like to learn more about your coaching or just follow your journey? Um, so I'm Facebook is my go-to because I'm of that generation. 
Um, okay. <laughs> I do I do have Insta, but Facebook's a lot easier to find me. Uh, Elizabeth Kelly Consulting and Coaching, um, as well as my my own personal Facebook page, which is mostly real estate stuff because that's what I do. Uh, yeah. You can also reach me at Elizabeth at ekconsulting.ca. Okay, awesome. I'll put all of that in the show notes. And um, one last piece of wisdom before we go. What, what would you like to leave our, our listeners and viewers with? You're putting, you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, <laughs> you can pass if you'd like. <laughs> I don't want to miss out on the opportunity. Yeah. Um, educate yourself before you take action. I like that one. So many people just say take action. I, yeah. I, I'm more yeah. leaning with you. I, I want to educate and I want to make take smart action because I made mistakes a yes. lot. <laughs> it, it's harder to undo a bad deal than it is to start from zero. So right. you're better off doing your research, building your team, educating yourself, and then taking action. Awesome. Elizabeth, you're very filled with wisdom. I can tell. Uh, loved what you're saying. That's why we, we didn't spend too much getting into the details because I just like, you know, having an abstract talk with you. I, you know, I think it's, I think people are going to get a lot out of this. So, um, you know, thank you for doing this and uh, I'll definitely be looking forward to hopefully seeing what you're up to uh, in person one day. And then of course, um, keep me posted on the big deals as they come in and let me know, uh, let me know some more case studies. Maybe we'll share them. I was thinking about doing a podcast episode where we just do like an update. Hey, I, you know, working on this deal right now and it's this is how that's it's going. awesome i think that's a that's a fantastic idea and uh it's been a, a real pleasure i know this is the first time we've really been able to connect and chat and uh i'm very i, I love your perspective i love the way you look at things and um i wish you every success in the future if there's anything i can ever do just reach out and i'm, I'm more than happy and of course if you're ever in and around kirkland lake yeah. come on up I'll, I'll show you a good time up here Sounds good. Well, yeah, I'm happy to have you in the network now. So, uh, so we'll uh, talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for watching today's episode. Just a friendly reminder to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you smash the like and subscribe and notification bell. Uh, and also leave a comment. And hey, while you're at it, why not share this episode with somebody you think it could help? It helps this podcast grow and I would really appreciate it. Thanks again. We'll see you on the next episode.